The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. Persistent and Nasty podcast has teamed up with We Edition to offer our listeners 25% off monthly subscription. Head over to We Edition and type in NASTY, all capital letters, 25 at checkout. I have said it before, I will say it again. We Edition really are the future of casting. And also you can make money while being a member on the site. You can um, be a scene partner for people and you can help with accents. You can just generally help each other out. And it's a really important thing for us to do, especially during these times and just a lovely way to have community. Our other offer for our listeners is still with Backstage. Backstage are offering our actors 12 months free subscription. You heard that right, 12 months free if you follow the link in the description box. For casting directors, you can post free castings when you type in Persistent and Nasty at checkout. Hello, you gorgeous lot, and welcome to another episode of the Persistent and Nasty podcast. Elaine here. How are you all doing? I hope that you're all keeping well, looking after yourselves and each other. Keep wearing those masks and washing those hands. I feel it in my bones. We're in the home stretch. Come on, we've got this. Today's guest is with Sandy Thompson. Sandy is a powerhouse. Um, She is the artistic director of Poor Boy Theatre Company, a playwright, screenwriter, director, filmmaker, and this episode is full of nuggets of uh, inspiration and um, just, you know, burning down the patriarchy, taking it right to the ground. And it is um, really exciting for all of us to have such a um, brilliant feminist and um, supporter on the podcast. So, all three of us are here for today's episode. I am sure you are going to love it all. Remember to like, subscribe and download the episode and review it. It really does help us with the algorithm and get all our amazing guests out to more listeners You can follow us on all social media, Twitter at Persistent Nasty, Instagram at Persistent and Nasty, Facebook Persistent and Nasty, and you can always send us a wee email if you fancy to persistentandnasty at gmail.com. For today's episode, I suggest, oh, a wee Prosecco, a wee gin, because Sandy quite likes a wee gin, Um, or a, a good shot of espresso. Um, Sandy's energy is infectious and to keep up I would definitely say you need some caffeine uh, or maybe just like a wee cup of just a wee cup of really something warm as always sit back relax and enjoy Sandy Thompson welcome to the persistent and nasty podcast (laughs) (laughs) it's lovely to see your faces (laughs) lovely to see your face I love you in yellow your tattoos out, fabulous as ever. Yeah, mm. I'm just enjoying the fact that because we have daylight now, 
I can actually see to put on my makeup. The minute I have to put on real makeup for the outside world, I'm in trouble because <laughs> none of this shit works beyond like Skype. Like the minute you're past Zoom, I'm not ready for any kind of close up at this point. I'm just completely out of practice. I'm also not used, I'm wearing like a full outfit. So like I have a skirt and everything on, whereas most of my time I'm like in my jammies on the bottom half. And then the top half is all business. I was at um, a training where someone said, could we all just stand up and say that statement? And everyone went, no, no. I, I, can't, I mean, honestly, I'm in booty shorts. I can't do it. I mean, my question is who is um, not wearing pajamas? <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, in terms of feminism, you have to find it liberating. The thing of, I'd said to Jay, I was like, I don't know if I will ever wear a bra again. Oh, fuck I don't no. know if I'll ever wear a pair of hard shoes again. And I certainly don't intend to carry a, nap, a backpack that's got like a laptop and all that stuff. Like the actual difference in my posture is amazing from not having to like huckle back and forward to Glasgow with an enormous bag on my back. And I'm like, God, you know, you don't realise until you take it all away where you're like, this is the default, like, you know, this is what guys get all the time. This is being comfortable in the clothes that you wear. I tried wearing a bra. I tried it as an experiment to wear a bra a month ago. I managed three hours and I was like, no, I, gee, what, what kind of awfulness are we doing to each other? So yeah. I, I have looked that as I realized because that's where I keep my crystals. <laughs> and when I don't wear my bra I'm like I don't have my crystals on me and then when I do wear my bra when I have to go outside I'm like oh I feel much better so I now realize I have to wear my bra I've got I it. Just that's fine as long as it serves a purpose pouches to myself I just like tie my pouches to me Ladies, you know you have pockets now, right? Like, you know, we fought hard, long we and hard, hard for pockets. Not hard enough we have pockets. and not big enough. Yeah, we, and we don't have pockets in all pyjamas and or leggings. That's fair. That's yeah. absolutely fair. This is also, and I feel like there is that thing that now with COVID, I don't know about you, but like the keeping the clean and the dirty stuff all separate malarkey of like, where is my hand sanitizer? Where is my mask? Like... You know, where is my other mask? Where are the things that I'm taking on and on? And that may well be because I'm still doing like, we're still shielding because like I have asthma, you know, Jake's got a heart condition. So I'm still like well, well shielding. But it is absolutely appalling. Like, you know, going out with like a short bag, I'm like, where are all the things? And then of course, you know, I'm wandering past half the population who are all mouth breathing just the same as they were before all over me. I think, you know, it's a terrifying thing where we always knew that lowest common denominator were dangerous, but the idea that they can now be fatal, I'm like, they just weaponized like daft people. Terrifying, Do you know? And, and you know, where I live, there are, there are plenty of them. So there's just a, we've become like nocturnal. We do like shopping raids at like nine o'clock at night when everybody else is away or like, you know, you know, the little old ladies who are there at like seven in the morning, that's me, Do you know, that's me. <laughs> So <laughs> I think that's the right time to go shopping though. Sorry? That's the right time to go shopping. I mean, I'm not getting up though to go shopping at seven in the morning. See, I think there's a thing of like there's 24 hours in a day now, because I live in the countryside and you know, most of my work is from this office and was on Zoom anyway. And now that there is this fluidity around people's hours. There is a thing of, you know, like Jake's also like freelance, semi-retired freelancing, which means that we spend a lot of time looking at each other going, is that nine in the morning or nine at night? Is this Tuesday? Is this Friday? 
it's the reason everybody chirpy because it's Friday and we just like the uh, the ability to because what happens I think what happens in theatre as well is you get you know you're used to your work as as chunks of work you get used to the idea of being project based so you know my whole kind of lockdown has been get ready for this event or get ready for finish this project or do, and the, and because I'm just digging into it and I'm not having other things um, happen around me like it's really odd because sometimes I'm in production time sometimes I'll be like getting through so many things and I'll be saying to Jake now what I need to do and he's like you told me that this morning it's the same day Sandy it's still the same day do you know <laughs> and I just kind of I've gone on to that matrix thing where like time goes like toffee and I can get phenomenal amounts done and then there's other days that I wake up and I do the teenage thing but I'm like I'm not getting up I'm just going, oh, by. Yeah. I'm going to stay in my house, lying in my bed is the only place psychologically where I might not be working. Oh, so gosh, there is this yeah. whole thing that's because that's what happens if you're a freelancer, right? There's no autonomy to your space. You know, there's there's no separation. So the only place that I, the only time that I work in my bed is when I'm breaking a script. Like when I'm at the thing of like, don't phone me, don't talk to me and I haven't got time to wash you know and I just like stay in the dark in my bed typing but mostly I don't do I don't do work we don't do screens in the bed you know like we don't do I don't do any of that stuff so they've definitely been times where I'm like it's like getting in touch with my inner teenager where I'm like you know Jake's like it's Sunday and I'm like yeah but does it matter I think I'm just gonna stay here and read a book yeah I just think I'm not gonna and I, I lost reading for a while so I'm really keen to like read now because I lost reading for like half a lockdown which was terrifying to me yeah so. that happened to me too um yeah. and I, was, I couldn't really pinpoint why I, I couldn't I still not really analyzed it enough to understand why but I'm back on it now but like yeah mm. for the first half I was like I can't I, I think that's the thing if we're like most artists what are you saying Misha? oh I lost it found it and lost it again oh, so God. I'm like still like oh I want it back yeah but it's I think that's a you know like as an artist, you already work with an enormous capacity for stress. Like, you know, that was the thing that was heartbreaking. You know, you all know that I do like work when I'm advising artists um, with the uh, Creative Entrepreneurs Club and, and watching almost like a slow motion tsunami wave, like the different, le- you know, as it hit different people and different people and different people. And what I remember thinking when I was talking to people was these are folk who already deal with an impossible workload like they already deal with a huge like unfeasible heart-stopping amount of insecurity in the things that they do and they are already resourceful right into the red and then when this happened without exception every artist I knew went I need a plan I need to work out how to deal and I'm like this might be bigger than us like just a minute you know like it's amazing that you're thinking that, but like take a breath before you dive in because the landscape's shifting really fast and there's a finite amount that you can do on grit and determination. And I don't think we say that to artists nearly often enough of going, there's a finite amount that grit and determination are absolutely necessary, but they're not the only things that have to be there for somebody to be able to cope, do you know? And the thing is in the arts, and it was, I kept talking to all these people who would get half an hour into an appointment and then lose it because artists are not allowed to say they're not managing. Like it's unacceptable. You're like, you're never ill. You're never late. People in salaries are used to things being manageable. 
and people who are freelance are used to, here's not enough money and not enough time, be amazing and suspend your life until it's done. And you get those two cultures in a room. And this is, you know, something that I talk about a lot, you know, in kind of uh, professional forums. It's like, like, that's why you get that mismatch, I think, between what freelancers are doing. And whilst terrifying for people on salaries, the reason it was terrifying was because they were having to think the way that freelancers have to think all the time. Do you know, like the reason that it wasn't, I spoke to lots of people who are doing great work in organisations, but the panic that they were having was about a situation that freelancers that I knew ate for breakfast. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, so there was a real issue where you go, where, you know, where is, where's the slack to let an entire industry deal with something, you know? So it felt like for the first six months of lockdown, like I was literally just fielding as people got from week to week. And I think that's why people, that's why you do things like lose the ability to read or lose because literally you have no bandwidth. You know, like years and years ago, like in my 20s, my dad died really unexpectedly. And I remember it took my mum and I seven hours to make a cup of tea. Like one of us would fill the kettle, forget about it, leave it. You know, somebody come past and be like, oh yeah, we were making tea put it back on set it to boil nobody would pick it up and and it took us a whole day to make a cup of tea and that I think that's what happens when something is crowding out the rest of your brain and I remember saying to her I was like I know how awful this situation is mum because all I can read is magazines I can literally do a column this long and certainly with with lockdown like I went back to comic books because our house is full of comics and read the Sandman and then like gradually worked my way back to, to work in that but I literally had to sit down with a pack of comics and be like could you focus on just this and I think it's that thing of like sitting in a state of readiness like when you've had a terrible fright about what's happening there is a thing about feeling like you must never quite step down from battle stations in case you are going to be called on to instantly do something and like every artist I knew had that every artist in a state of complete stress when I have to use all my smarts and pivot and work out what I'm doing and I have to be available 24 7 because I have to watch the landscape and I have to see what's happening and I just you know I I I think it's great that what it's done is started conversations around the way that freelancers are treated in the industry the fact that the rate of attrition of freelancers is just accepted by the industry as the cost of running the industry and yeah. that if you want to be sustainable, there is still, and there is still, like, we'll see what happens. You know, COVID, lockdown hasn't fixed it. We'll see yeah. what happens. Because if you want to stay in the industry, you know, the accepted wisdom is if you're a company, get RFO funding. And if you, you know, and if you're a, an individual, then get yourself a, a seat behind a desk. Like, get yourself, a, like, a job within an organisation that's got permanent or RFO funding. And the reality is you can't do the same kind of work in those jobs. Do you know, mm-hmm. you can't, you can't do either of those things. And, and I just, you know. I saw, so um, sorry, I just that, no, that I had I, to say this because this, that made me think I saw um, Rosie Priest uh, from, uh, who mm-hmm. works with Stella Quines and is an artist and maker and an academic in her own right. And she's been on our podcast before, but I saw a little Twitter exchange between her and Oliver Emmanuel, the playwright, um, who it was a discussion about, this very thing freelancers salaries etc etc yeah and um 
he made well it's a perfectly valid point on the surface of it um about you know reprioritizing who gets like why aren't why aren't artists on salaries which is absolutely something i think that should be up for discussion yeah. but he, he built administrators into that point and rosie read the, raised this excellent thing to say you know administrators and organizations are often artists artists as well because they've taken those roles and are transferring their skills to make a crust whilst yeah. also trying to write the play or find the play yeah. to direct or be the actor or whatever it is so yeah. like they are doing that thing and they decompartmentalize their brain and their workload and in that and then have to carve out the time to be the artist so it's like this don't don't come for the administrators it's really we need need to direct (laughs) we need to direct the energy upwards you know I'm working in film just now and I was sitting with somebody the other night and I was like do you know in 10 years time we'll look at it and go it's a shame for middle class white guys because there's not a single thing that's unexplored but there's not a single important thing they can say right now like the important thing is that they shut up and they let and they facilitate everybody else to do stuff because they've had the stage for so long. There's not a film they can make. There's not a play that they can write right now that's as important or as urgent as literally everybody else. Literally anyone who's not a middle class white man, like, is more important to the scene and to to the to the you know the further furthering of our culture. Right now, and I think that is the thing is that you're you know the the idea not thinking about the fact that administrators are also artists also comes from being endlessly bloody facilitated by women. So like the reality is that when you want shit organized, what you do is you find an enormously independent, smart woman who's able to work magic and then you get them to come and work for your organization, don't pay her enough and don't give her opportunities or budget to make her own work. And it's one of these things that like, and I say this as somebody's like, I'm a an amazing administrator like I'm a great or I've been an event organizer all my life and you know I I think there is a thing where there's a discussion to be had about you know I I, I think there's something deeply harmful in the arts in that we act as if there's something wrong with having a side gig like this whole idea that that what that side gig is isn't about populating the infrastructure with informed artists I mean you know, when I was in my 20s, I was doing the job that you're doing now, Louise, like I was doing literally your side gig, you know, and I was programming and, you know, running stuff for a local authority. And subsequent to that, you know, I've had, let's say, I have an amazing side gig. I talk about it a lot because, you know, I, I went looking for a job like the CEC job because I was spending so much of my time mentoring and advising people. And I was like, I haven't got capacity to make my art, do all this stuff, and earn money. I don't have enough capacity to do all of those things. So some one of those things has to go together. And we all know it's not going to be the work. And this was, I was having this conversation with, with myself on an opening week of a show that got five stars everywhere. But the difference is that as a non-middle-class white guy, you can't assume that that will translate to the next gig that's slightly bigger. So the difference is just that they're on a ladder, they're on a conveyor belt, they're on an escalator, they don't have to lift their feet. Do you know, like, it's just like, sit your ass on the bottom and it will eventually freight you up until you're in charge of a large organization. And all you have to do is try not to be caught being a sex offender. That's literally all, that's the, that's the bar. Like, that's how low the bar is. So the problem is that means that those men have to self-manage, which means means that, which they, which they don't. Like, when have you ever seen 
somebody be a guy being motivated to do something unless the world is telling him to. We don't socialize boys like that. We don't socialize boys to think of the community, to think of making connections. Girls are taught that the worst thing that can happen is somebody doesn't like you. The worst thing that can happen is that you don't oblige the community that you're part of. So without any sense of responsibility, these guys get on the escalator and then just move their way up without breaking a sweat. And they think that's the world and that it happens because they're talented. It's really interesting. We were talking, Misha and I were talking to a, a Shakara Carter yesterday. We were talking about the middle class white man thing mm-hmm. and, and not just in the arts. I mean, just across the board, you mm. know, like at the moment it's like, oh, it's ubiquitous, you know, yeah. it's everywhere. But actually we kind of made the point of it's actually not even coming from them. It comes from up above them. It's the even richer white dudes that own far more stuff. And what they've done is they've seen a way of using it so that none of us are paying attention to actually who's got all the money and who's got all the wealth and who's got all the power. But let's aim it at the middle-class white dudes because Mm -hmm. then everybody's focus is on them and not actually on the issues. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really important thing that we kind of take on board in a societal way not just in the arts but it's how we're re- because for some people when you say middle class they don't automatically assume lots of money they might just think you know oh I don't know your mm-hmm. your dad's a doctor but maybe mm-hmm. your mum didn't work or something yeah so yeah. you know like that doesn't mean you've got shit loads of money yeah it just puts you in a place of privilege to start yeah. with that's exactly what it is but it's all from up there. Anyway, that's that's my point. <laughs> I think the thing is that that's, I think that's absolutely true, but I think it's absolutely vitally important that what you never do is let someone who's within your reach off the hook about it. Because the minute that we start talking absolutely. about higher power, that's just divide and conquer in terms of the conversation. Because trying to get guys in those positions to take responsibility for the system that put them in the positions they're in is... It's a com- it's co- it runs completely counter to any interest that they have, which means that what you get is lots of verbiage from those from guys in those positions about the fact that they really care about this stuff, whilst never making a change that will make them redundant. Like I don't know about you, you know, we've all led rooms at different times. If you're good at what you do, eventually you make yourself redundant. You move on to your next thing, but you leave the shoes empty for someone else who is able to do, you know, and the problem is that, that you know, these guys only empathize with people who talk about the things that they're interested in. That's why theater's in such danger of becoming irrelevant, is that so much, I haven't missed going to theater. Like I haven't missed going to see Scottish theater because so much of it is repetitive, derivative. And if I want to go and listen to what a middle-class white guy thinks, I'll go to a, something with my uncles. Do you know, like, I don't need, <laughs> don't need to pay fucking ticket money for it. So, you know, the reality is that, yeah, I think the thing is, yes, the class system and the way that the arts works is an absolute reflection on, you know, like, it's all about capitalist values. And it's all about, yes, where does the real power lie? But fundamentally, you have the basics of, in terms of the circles that people work, you know, in terms of working for a living, and this is always the thing that pisses me off about the arts it's because the reality is that working in theater is really hard if people want an easy time then what the fuck are you doing here like what are you doing here the point of this is an industry where you think hard you work hard you make great work if those aren't your criteria you shouldn't be here 
like you shouldn't be making what those aren't if you don't want to think hard work hard and make fantastic work not just interesting work not slightly provoking work like unless you want to make something that genuinely you know has people walk out into the world you you've got the enormous privilege as a as a maker and of course i'm speaking from a writer director perspective because that's what i am but you know the reality of how unique and special it is to have a certain amount of in the normal model a living breathing amount of community in one room listening and looking at a world that you created and the amount of times that i've seen that opportunity just wasted because the, if you aren't able to examine hard yourself as a person, your position within the world, you don't have the necessary tools to make interesting work. Like you can, and I am all for work being entertaining. I have had various reviews that have a problem with how entertaining my work is as opposed to being <laughs> intellectual. But the reality is, and there is bugger all wrong with that. There's bugger all wrong with something that making something that lightens people's heart. But it has to come from a ferocious love of your audience. Like it has to come from an absolutely ferocious love of the work and the people who come to see it. And if it isn't, again, I'm just like, why, you know, it's like James Cameron versus Ken Loach, if we're going to talk about white guys. Do you know what I mean? You're just like, there's literally, every time I sit in a James Cameron film, I'm like, what is the point of this? Like, mm -hmm. what is the point in this existing? And and it's, you know, I think that's the thing with, with theatre is that, you know, you've got a chance to make a live interaction. So the, the bar is just higher in lots of ways because the bar is, you are in the same space as gigs where people are literally out of their face and like having the most exciting time short of sex that they can possibly be having, do you know? Or you're talking about political rallies or meetings where people are doing things that matter. If theater isn't both those things, then what is it for? Like if it isn't heart-stoppingly vital, exciting and sexy, and it, and it isn't politically engaged and deeply concerned with the inequalities of, of the world, then what are you doing do you know yeah, and i yeah. i just and i think that is the problem is that like the thing that happens is that your your women that you're talking about we're talking about who are administrators or the people who are administrators i'm not saying that guys don't do it i'm just saying that women are bred to do it because basically you're tidying everybody else's fucking socks yeah and let's be honest the like the ratio of of women and producer administrator roles versus mm. men like come on like yeah, come on. Like we don't I mean, need I, to. I, I remember like, sitting with my mum when I set up the company. I remember sitting talking to my mum when I set up the company. And I was like 29 when I set up. Poor boy, it's been going 20 odd years, 20 years now. And I remember saying to her, the problem is that I'm looking at the model, I'm looking, I'm looking at all the different companies, I'm looking at how work gets developed. And fundamentally, the model is that a guy has an idea of something he wants to do and some woman who's in love with him makes it happen some woman who fancies him that she he ignores or some woman who already loves him loves her and is in relationship with him makes that shit happen and i don't have that but <laughs> you know like i don't have that i am married to a professional guy doing his own stuff who isn't about to become my facilitator and guys are not but i talk to it mm -hmm. so you know the, the the issue the issue comes from that idea that what happens is that women get put into positions where they're valued for what they can do for others, not what they can do. And 
the, that's the thing is that you know I I there's a there's a lot of times that you know you the amount of broken record technique that you have to do is doesn't change as you get older like I am getting to the you know I'm in my, I'm 50 now you know and I look in the mirror and anyone who's my age will tell you that inside if any 50 year old looking in the mirror is a deeply shocked 25 year old wondering when that happened because you don't you don't feel externally more able to do things you don't feel like attitudinally necessarily that you've changed I certainly don't the artists I know don't but there's definitely a thing where what the world projects onto you has shifted from when you were 25 which was like the age I was when I did my first administrator gig and consequently you can see it much better because it moved so you can see where the bugger is so what I realized is that in my Twitter, like what I realized is that women under 40, but oh God, you know, particularly women in their twenties and early thirties are bombarded with like project, misogynistic projections and sexual harassment in an effort to keep them still small and useful to men. And like, actually I was at a, I was given a talk at something, I forget what it was, maybe Scottish Youth Theatre, I can't remember. Um, and a 21 year old producer spoke to me and she was like, this is just like all the stuff you tell me, like it's tough. And I was like, it is, but if you can do it at your age, you can do it at any point. It gets easier as you get older because right now you are in the crosshairs. Literally every single aspect of you and what you do has to get passed through the sexualizing filter when a man talks to you. and the problem is that our entire industry is set up so that those are the guys that you have, they're the gatekeepers. So whether it is, you know, uh, being on tour as a stage manager, which is also what I did in my twenties, like I was production staff and touring and meeting what my stage manager used to call hairy ass bastards in venues, you know, guys who are like janitors or techs at regional venues. You know, as a woman director, you find yourself now, I find myself having conversations with my stage management going, what do you want me to do about this? I'll do something about it. Tell me, look, but I need you to sit down with me. Those women shouldn't have to have those discussions. I shouldn't have to spend the time. I shouldn't have to jeopardize my relationship with the venue. I'm gonna. But that's the thing is that, you know, your guys on an escalator, they're not gonna. And that means your guys in your escalator are no bother. You know, you guys in your escalator are so easy to work with, such a joy to work with, such a nice guy. Bollocks, it's all bollocks. Being a nice guy means you signed up to the fucking patriarchy because it's feeding you sweeties. I don't trust anybody. When I'm told that someone's a nice guy, I'm like, what does that mean? Do you know, does that just mean he never caused anybody a problem? Because that means he's probably a problem. You know, yeah. so the reality of it is that, you know, and you get this thing where you have these things projected onto you. If you are a woman who is doing something, not a woman who is helping others, a woman who is going at, is saying, I'm going to do a thing. And what happens is, first of all, you have all that sexualization is projected on you. And that doesn't go away. It's just the guys hitting on you get older. I got hit on the last train journey I had. was a guy white hair and he kept all his hair. He was clearly very proud of it. But he literally did that thing where I had to look at him and go, I've got headphones in. And, and that like, and this guy is your granddad's age. Like this guy is 60 something. This guy is the same age as my husband. Do you know? And it's like, there's a thing when I'm like, there's guys who don't know how to behave, never know how to behave. It doesn't matter how old they are, how young they are, it doesn't matter. So 
you get you have to wade through all of this thing and anybody anyone who's disadvantaged a woman of color someone who isn't physically you know allowed to access things because of their body like whatever it is will tell you that the minute that there is someone who doesn't experience that inequality in the room there is work for you to do and it is never questioned that it is your bloody work that you will have to do it which means that no matter how wonderful the man is that is in the room with you if you are a woman you are you have just been landed with a bunch of work because no matter how willing he is you have a process of education it's literally the stuff that you know we talk about for every single type of intersectional discrimination or disadvantage if people haven't lived it they will require education and that will fall on you despite the fact that you have less status in the room or less budget or are dealing with more things so the reality is that what happens is you know guys women don't even notice that that's there like I was 35 before I even noticed that that was a burden that I had been carrying it wasn't until I was running rooms and saying to people, no, that won't work. And I was getting pushed back. And I'm like, I don't know where you think you're going with no, because I'm here, I'm saying it's not happening. It's very clear. So let's just save you a lot of time because I'm not having this discussion anymore. And that's what when you become a hard ass. And the thing is, you know, you look at it and I go, I don't see guys having to have that conversation. Not only do I not see them not having to have that conversation, at the time when push comes to shove, if they put their foot down like that, people will be like, oh, boss is mad step around it and there would be like a ripple effect from it so you go through all this sexualization so that you have that thing of the people telling you no are also the people who are trying to get into your pants which is a teal comic well yeah 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 I, it's far too difficult let's resolve this another way let's go for a drink i right do you know and that is relentless like you know that that's something that happens i was um explaining to Louise that just about every guy that's ever been in my room, not all of them, I'm going to be honest, there are honourable exceptions. And that's what pisses me off because it means it's a fucking choice, right? It's an, there are honourable exceptions because there are guys who have asked themselves the questions of like, am I treating this director different because she's a, a woman? And have worked out what to do about that and to not make it my problem. My, their education is still my problem. It's not like there's no burden, but they're not directly causing me an issue that day. But almost without exception, 90% of the guys who have been in my room used to go, have gone through a ritual where they are in love with the power that you have. So they therefore hit upon the power. They're not really hitting on you. They're hitting on the power. They would like to be next to the power in the room. You are revolutionary, certainly if it's me, you know, my, my room's fairly special. So, you know, there is a thing for guys where they're like, this is opening up bits of me. And the thing is that when you open up bits of a man, they think that that means that there is a special bond because they're not used to living like that. Every woman who's shared wine with another woman on the train knows that you can open that shit up any way you want. But guys aren't taught to do it, so they think it's special. So all of a sudden you have the we have a special bond shit happens. Then you make it clear that that's not the situation, at which point they get pissed off and they either go away to lick the wounds or they fight you for the power in the room. Anyone who has done youth theatre with wee boys already knows this happens. Like anyone who's done youth theatre with wee boys be like, why am I not in charge? Why am I not? They'll start by doing an improvisation on your foot when you told them to walk around the room. And then when that's not good, they'll take the huff, you know. Then once you've dealt with all of that, they will come back and decide that they're your pal or they'll disappear. 
And it's like, you have to go through that matrix and they don't know, they don't even know that that's sexualized. They don't know that that's because they don't know how to deal with a woman in a position of authority who is autonomous and doesn't need anything from them except that they do what's asked of them. And that, you know, so you have all of that as a young woman where the quickest way to subvert that is to make you something less and they make you something less. And this is really annoying. They make you something less by sexualizing the situation because, and I have never understood this. Speaking as someone, you know, who is quite open about the fact that I've been married twice and prior to that did whatever I wanted with whoever I wanted, whenever I wanted to. I have never understood the misogynistic sleight of hand that means that a woman that wants whatever she wants sexually is somehow lesser. But the reality is that to the men in the room that she is. So as a, as a young woman, you go in, you are just doing the gig. Like imagine what that's like, just going in and doing the gig without all of those shenanigans. And then as you get older, or if you don't fit that box for them, if your body is different, if you're whatever, you've got that or you've got the mum box. And this is what I started to notice in rehearsals. The guys who used to be in my face doing the, hey, let's have a drink and sort this out stuff, started to make this face. And I'm like, what is that? What is that thing that they're doing with their face where they put their head on one side? What is that? And I worked out eventually, it was like, you're my mum, you could fix that for me. And it was genuinely, it took me where I was like, oh no. <laughs> and like, really, and this is, you know, I am nobody's mum. Do you know, like, I'm literally not a mum. So I think there is also a thing as women are progressing is that as women stop their careers to have, children if they decide to do that or whatever like there is they, there is a tiny bit of being used to servicing what people do that is ruthlessly then jumped on by the men that are in your working environment so the problem is that so having not ever been anybody's mum like it's not everybody in our family knows if you want sympathy you go to my cousin Arlene if you want it fucking fixed you come and see me but there's like there's no mum stuff going on here. And, you know, and that's the thing is that that's how dumb it is. That's how little it is about the women on the receiving end. Because there isn't an iota of me that radiates mum. I spend a lot of my life helping people. I spend a lot of my life listening to people, giving advice, mentoring people. But every single bit of it isn't done from being bloody kind. I'm not Mrs. B kind. Like I'm doing it because that's how you build a bloody sisterhood. That's how you change the fucking world. It's a political act. And, and the reality is that, you know, these guys looked at this tone-faced, stony, absolutely unimpressed with your shit face and went, that will mum me because it has boobs. That'll mum me. It's the right shape for mum. That'll mum me. And that's why you notice it, is that there's not guys your own age expect you to know. And I say this as someone, again, I'm in my 50s, which means that I am happy to be honest about the fact that I'm experienced with the men I'm experienced with. I'm saying that there's honorable ex exceptions, but it's a lot closer to all of them than it is to not all men, do you know? But you, I notice generational shift. Like I've worked with some 20 something filmmakers and whilst it was like being in a den of puppies, there was definitely a bit of it where you're like, okay, do you know what? You are brought, you're being brought up with an awareness of feminism that's different. We'll see whether that sticks at the point where the opportunities come up. Because what happens is everybody, when the starting gates open, everybody's at the same stage. 
you're all at the same point. And it isn't until there's money on the table that you suddenly start to notice, you go, all of those combos, that was like a woman and a man. Why am I only hearing about him now? You know, you look at any feature film that's 15 years old and you will see the same guy that you're still watching in feature films. The girl that's playing opposite him, almost never, almost never is progressing in the same way. And that's the most visible way I know to let people understand that that's there and that they have to watch it because the individual instances, and this is the real trick that the patriarchy pulled on us in the arts, every individual instance where a woman is not advanced will have its own rationale and reason because all of them are in on it. And that's what I mean about guys on the escalator being the enemy is because there isn't enough awareness. So the idea of, I, spoke, I forget, someone talked to me about a visiting industry specialist from film who had come in to talk to some film students that I was with last week. And he'd said, you know, I need somebody who's going to go to New York tomorrow, like if I asked them to. So if you can't do that, then yeah, you might want to think about not having children. And bless her, because she's doughty, she, you know, the, the girl that I was talking to, she said, I, I challenged him on it. And I'm like, there's the labor again. She's a student. She's a student and she's talking to a vision specialist who's got power in her world. And her first interaction has to be calling him on the fact that he just said something illegal and he doesn't know it's illegal. And, you know, I'm like, where are your lecturers in this? You know, where are, so unless you are living with it every day, unless you're living with that awareness every day, the problem is that the very set of choices that put that guy in that room need to be looked at. And that's why you can only deal with the people within your reach. And whilst I absolutely agree with you, Elaine, that like there is a bigger, you know, there is a bigger issue at stake here that is about the absolute fundamental inequalities of wealth and how it's distributed. The problem is that every woman that you know is having to deal with every guy that she contacts with. So you can only do it in the layers that you can that you can reach. You and I can't go talk to those guys. You and yeah. I are never going to be in a room with those guys. Yeah. So the reality is, and I, you know, I've spoken often about football team feminism. It's like do what you're good at and know what everybody else on your team does. So an instance of that, you know, I I often say that you know my job as someone who is not sexually available, as someone who you know who is old enough a lot of the time to be the offender's auntie, if not mum at this point, I probably could be their mum at this point. Like, you know, as someone who is all these different things, but someone who's been a director for a long time, who's got some things that they want, all these kind of things. Like my job as a feminist isn't to play nice about it. My job is to not, if you have a, if I have a problem with you and, and the sexism that you're bringing to the room or the classism that you're bringing to the room or the racism you're bringing to the room, my, not, my job is to knock you on your arse good and hard till you wonder where that tackle came from. Like my job is to surprise you because someone you thought who was going to mum is calling you publicly on something that you're doing that's harmful and actively naming it as both harmful and your fault. Because that's the problem with the, el the escalator. The escalator lets them go, oh, it's the system. Like the system just arrived with a magic wand and wasn't yeah. fecking built 
by the guys on the escalator for the guys on the escalator. This is um this this point here, right here, is I've started using this phrase in, in conversations in rooms, both in a work context and in a personal context, like the complacency is violence. Because Absolutely. while you're on the escalator humming and hawing and being sad, yes. you know, we see t- tweets from liberal lefty white boys in charge of buildings saying they're being sad. See, while you're being sad and not doing anything, the bodies are hitting the floor. Totally. So like, could we... stop resting on your nice guy laurels and start like actively being angry that's what I want from you and I know it's scary look I give you I give you my understanding my empathy I understand that it's frightening but like I'm scared all the time but I'm still doing it so like you have more power than me and you have a bigger and softer and cushier safety net than me so your complacency is an act of violence at this stage for me absolutely and I think that's where I'm at with the because you're absolutely right. We need to we need to drive towards the things we can actually change and the mm-hmm. people we can actually reach to have those conversations with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just I'm just sick of it. I'm sick of like going through this the cycle of getting angry again and people being harmed in order to trigger that trigger harmed yeah. or killed in order to trigger that cycle yeah. and then come back to the fact that nothing's been done. Yes, and um, that's the thing. It's like until you see action, like the thing is that there's not. And I say this as somebody that you know. I have two permanent men in my life. Like there's no, you know, I, I am, I am married. I've been married for 20 years to a guy that I adore who adores me. And I, you know, I work with Jeremiah who used to be in the Pure Boy Ensemble and who now is co-writer and produces with me and runs Squad Walk, our film company. And we have collaborated for years and I adore those men, but I'm not going to pretend that I didn't take on the weight of education. They, they wanted to learn. Like they were, they would have been the guys who had the honorable exceptions that I'm talking about. They were self-managing. But the big difference between being around them and being around other guys is that they never at any point thought that it was my job to fix their shit. And that's the thing is that, you know, I think that that, you know, both of them probably went have been on a real journey over the the, the years and years and years that we've known each other. And it's important to always flag up. You go, that still means I'm carrying the burden of education. I'm still setting back and going, okay, no, the reason this worked like this, let me explain. Being a receptive audience is the bare fucking minimum that's needed because the women in the room are always having to pour this out. And the reality is that, yeah, whilst they're talking about a concept, we're talking about the shit that has affected our lives. You're going to, I go into a room of women, I go, Every woman in this room, I I don't believe you're one in five. Like I don't, I know that the rain statistics say one in five women have been, you know, raped or sexually assaulted. But I worked at women's aid. I worked as a crisis counselor with women that had, you know, that were survivors of violence. And the stats are the reported stats. The reality is that you go into a room and what you might find is one in ten who haven't been. You might find one in ten who haven't been or who don't recognize it because most of the time I think that's more likely that they don't recognize it I've had conversations with older women who are like I know I see you tweeting this stuff but I don't think I have and I'm like I've been there when you were can do you want me to explain when it is and then you see them going oh right okay that there's not because what happened and that's why particularly feminists my age I think those of us who are still engaged feminists are furiously busy right now because we know how awful it was and how easy it would be for it to go back there like we remember 
the thing of just endless like you know my 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 gran had a bar you know the peanuts that you took out of the little thing had like a topless girl you had guys would buy peanuts off of this holder so that you would reveal the topless girl I'm in there when I'm eight do you know what I mean like there's not the idea I had an aunt who used to say but boys are best do you know boys are best think pink boys are best and it was a real thing you know I had aunties who would send me over the road during my lunch hour to get my cousin's dinner because he's got to get back to work I'm like I've got to get back to school I've got seven exams which you know Sandy's always been a problem and the thing is that's not my family that's just normal like my family was not excessively sexist and I was really lucky because I was protected from a great deal of it because my dad was a feminist and I think that's the thing is that the thing that's so frustrating is men can make such a difference if they stir their ass to do it. So like my dad was a deeply political guy and, and worked in engineering, he worked in heavy engineering. He worked in an industry that said that you had to be macho and that you had to have a certain way about you. And he was gentle and good humored in an environment that did not know what to do with gentlemen. And he just acted like it was normal and never let it be changed. And the thing that he did was to constantly clear the way for me. Like I didn't know, the reason I'm like this is because I didn't know until he, until he was gone, I think, that a lot of the, way, the ways in which I was listened to was because I was listened to because my dad never dismissed what I said. So whilst confronting, and we all have them, whether it's racist, sexist uncles or whatever, you know, there was always this thing of going, Brian will listen to her. So you're not allowed to just discount her the way you're discounting the other women that don't have a man listening to them. Now, the thing is, if that's the tiny, now you all know what a fucking tornado I am when it comes to like talking truth to power. And that only comes from the fact that the power in the room used to listen to me, which means the power in the room should be listening to me. It's not more true for me than it is for anybody else. I was just bred up to absolutely believe it was a truth and that anyone who thought otherwise was clearly wrong. And that was like, and there is nothing more that you can do for a girl. You know, in lots of ways at that point, there was very little more that you could do for a girl. So there was a real thing of like, men can make so much difference. Men can make so much, how create so much clout with other men. It's like the, the Daniel Sloss thing. You know, you're like, if one in 10 guys is the problem, but the other nine are doing nothing, then 10 guys are the problem. Do you know, so you have that thing of going, the impact that they make is, is so, it's so easy to see how you create a legacy. It requires such little effort. And that's the thing is that, you know, whilst this is happening, a, like a timer is running. I remember writing the end of Monstrous Bodies, I was in the last draft when Trump got into power. And Jake was like, you are like more than politically upset. I was a wreck, like I was a mess. And part of it was exactly that. I was like, there's a body count. There's a, there's a body count attached to this. And every time, every damn time that you hear a platitude or a something that you know from experience is a holding operation. Let's look at it. Let's not look at it. Let's just sit down and listen to the women that live it every day because there's no need for you. What you mean is let me look at it. And then with my greater 
status. I'll decide what we're doing. And you're like, just seed power, like just seed power. The ethical thing that all of you should be doing is handing over the keys to the fucking castle and going, this is your thing. You're telling us that we have to live it to understand it. We can't live it. So here's me giving you the stuff to facilitate you. You know, they talk about, somebody explained to me how noise cancelling headphones worked the other day, right? Some, bless them, some deeply, deeply intense sound guy explained to me how noise cancelling headphones worked by broadcasting the exact opposite of the noise that was happening. I, said, I want noise cancelling for men. Like I want noise cancelling in the world for men. I want like, I want the 50 years of my life back where women are in charge of every major decision as opposed to guys being in charge of every major decision. I want every guy in his twenties to have to walk into a room of women, women and know that they are being topped to toad and assessed physically. First job I ever went to, one actor who's still working, who's still out there, we meet them at parties, turned to another actor and went, have you just seen the pair of tits that walked in? And that got reported back to me by someone who wished to seem virtuous without going, do you know what? I knew that because I can smell it because when you're a 20 year old woman, you can smell that on the other side of the room. You know that, you know exactly what that is. You get ready for it. The thing, when people talk about the invisibility of the older women, what they actually mean is the thing of like, being ready to fight a thing that stops happening because you've become the age of their mom. So they've stopped doing it to you. Your response never goes away. That's fucking trauma damage. If someone is continually acting like something might happen long after the likelihood of it happening has passed, then that's trauma damage. And the thing is that I don't know why these guys aren't mortified. I don't understand the lack of humanity and empathy that doesn't mean that they aren't dying a thousand deaths going, what did I do? Like, what have I done? What did I do to facilitate this? Who in my room is that guy? If I can't tell, who in my room is that guy? And that's, you know, it's really well known that, you know, I got really loud during the, the Me Too stuff because I didn't, I was appalled that Scottish theatre didn't have a response like didn't have a collective response. And I got all sorts of namby-pamby, I like chat from all of them about why that happened. Cause I went knocking on doors and went, why is there no response to this? You just told every one in 10 guy that it's okay. You literally, like you're saying, it's just the bodies are hitting the floor. You just told them it was fine. Your silence is complicity. When are you going to say something? What's the coordination of like the whole of Scottish? Scottish theater is small. You can fix all of it. Like it's not big. It's not a big organization, but to do it, we have to treat this like a public health emergency. We have to treat this like COVID. We have to treat this like a societal ill that needs to be dealt with. And what happens is it gets put in a box of social things I should deal with. And then when I've dealt with them, I get back to doing the real work. You're like, this is the fucking real work. If you are a man, in the arts, if you're a man in the world just now, this is the unfinished business. What Hillary Clinton said is the unfinished business of the 20th century. 
And the reality is that you don't get to go back to the real world where you're making bits of whimsy about what it is to be a dad when you're kicking 50. I don't care. I don't give a fuck. Nobody cares. It's not important. Because what you're doing is doing bottom lip trembly, look how deep and interesting my life shit is while the bodies are hitting the floor. The thing that's the job of men that are in these jobs just now is literally to hand over the keys to the car because they're not fit to drive. And part of being part of a community is recognizing when it's not your job. The football team feminism that I'm talking about, it's not my job to sit and sympathize with some confused 25 year old who didn't know he was doing a bad thing and who is trying to unpick 25 years of education that women are lesser that he didn't even know he was getting. I'm not that soldier, do you know? But if I knock him on his butt and then pass him to a lassie his age that he's got a relationship with, who's got the time and cares for him enough to do it, that's how you pass them like they're the ball. Here, you take that one. I'll take that one. You do this bit. I'll deal with this bit. And when it comes to things like, you know, David Gregg tweeting his great concern about what had happened in and last, I mean, you know, talking to you guys is hard this week. I'm raw this week. I don't know about you, but you know, I'm toiling this week because you're just like, how can we have International Women's Day at one end, Mother's Day at the other, and in between have all of those, I mean, just horrendous. So the point where David tweets that he's concerned about it, I'm going to believe that that's true. Like, I don't doubt for a minute that that's true, but I'm not interested. I'm like, I asked you two years ago to make a public plan that would allow people to you who are make, running companies to establish how to eradicate the Me Too issue within their building, how to eradicate them. And it is like, I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying that harassment doesn't happen when it's women in positions of power and men, but it's as rare as hen's teeth. <laughs> and it's not the same as dealing with the men. I'm like, all of these men are in there, in jobs, getting paid on your watch. The first thing that should happen shouldn't be a whisper network. The first thing that should happen, everybody's so worried about like, but what if baseless accusation? When has that happened? Like in the history of the world, how often has a vulnerable group pointed to something and said, this individual member has had a, a bad experience and that not to be true? Why is it that false accusation is more important than stopping the bodies hitting the floor? And it's because the bodies are women and that's when they do nothing. That's what they're saying. And that's why feminists my age are this angry, <laughs> do you know, is that because that's what they're saying. They're saying that's the way it is. I'm like, no, that's the way that you have arranged for it to be and benefited from. Finish the sentence. And the reality is that if you don't do that, you don't get to call yourself part of the solution. And none of the things that you do counts for anything. Because what you're fundamentally failing in is leadership. If there's football team feminism, there are certain things that only leaders can do. You know, like the, the conversation that I had with David two years ago, I said, you need to understand your room is the room that these guys want to be in, right? You're running a flagship venue. You are the room that they aspire to be in. They, you've got the, the commissions that they aspire to have work out how to make it absolutely clear on every level that if there is the slightest whisper of any kind of misogyny in your work or the slightest enabling of misogyny in the structures that you run, that there is no chance that they can access that room. Take something away from them. 
take it off the table. And this come, you know, and this is, I speak as the generation who watched the Roman Polanski stuff, you know, separating the artist and the works a crock of shit. Separating the artist and the work is simply a way to make excuses for abusive men. If I'm sitting in a room, in a theatre or in a cinema, watching a piece of art, watching a, a film or watching a piece of theatre, I am watching what that director's take on the world is. I am less and less and less interested in the take of the men of theatre on the world because the reality is that it is hugely irrelevant unless it's engaged with dismantling the power of the men that are making that work. And the thing is, that's, you know, there is a, I, I spoke to an older feminist because everybody needs mentors. And like, I spoke to a, a feminist in her 70s recently. And she said, you know, part of her theory, part of the, the hippie theory, she was a hippie, and part of the hippie theory of feminism is that women are expected to be chameleons. We're expected to deal with inordinate change all the way through our lives. You know, we go from being a child and about 11 or 12, you hit that fucking wall where you come out behind the veil, you're suddenly assailable as a woman and every male relative that you know doesn't want to know about it. So you go through that change. Then you go in, you know, you go through puberty. You go, you, you navigate the hellscape that is dealing with men in systems that like schools that think they're there to educate but don't take on the fact that harassment happens in every corridor and you go through all of that then potentially you're in a relationship so you learn to negotiate that then you potentially become a mother or make the big choice not to become a mother or discover that you're not going to be a mother any one of those is a huge seismic change in how you think about whatever you thought of what normal was you know and you deal with it, you get through that bit and then you hit the menopause. Like you're, you're constantly being told about the changing acts because women live on a clock. Women live on a clock where the stage that they're at is commented on ruthlessly by society at every, in every living moment. Guys are just guys and guys can get to 60 and still be boys. Like we've all met them. You know, some guys get to, get to 40 realize that they're not going to rock the world the way that they were told they would when they were 15 buy motorbikes and have a nervous breakdown do you know like that's also a thing that happens but by and large guys don't go through first second third act all guys are all living the start of their second act their whole life they are living the start of their second act they never move on to the third act and that's because society tells them they don't have to that's why you have Gary Oldman playing opposite a lassie that's too young to even be his daughter and, and you know and I just look at films like that I forgot what it's called now but you know where you're just like I can't like I'm I'm so done like the list I just want Netflix to make a list of films that goes nobody was sexually nobody is a sex offender who's involved with this film or there are no glaring discrepancies of race and age there is no colorism in this film there is I just want there'd be happiness. no content Sandy <laughs> Sorry? There'd be no content at that well, point. That, you know, like when you find it, I have this little list that's called unproblematic. Oh, and wow. And it's like, it's when Jake and I can't deal and he's like, we need to go to the unproblematic. Let's not take a risk tonight. Let's watch an unproblematic film. And like, but you know what I mean? Like yeah, that ultimately totally. it comes down to where is your authority to tell a story if you're unable to examine the role that you yourself are playing in the absolute ruthless crushing of other people's stories. Every time a guy raises his voice, someone else is silenced. Every time a white middle-class guy raises his voice, 
And the problem with theatre is that, I mean, I'm working in film now, it's a different animal. It's a much more commercial, you know, much, much more ruthless, but much more working class. Like, it's interesting that you meet people from all sorts of backgrounds. The problem with theatre is that theatre is a middle class white male enclave pretending that it's talking intelligently about the world when literally what it's talking about is white middle class male belly buttons and anything else is issue based. Mm. Like, what? It, show me a play without a fucking issue. Like this drives me, you know, like the idea of going, coming from this standpoint, coming from that stuff, you're like, or you could just say, because we're the norm. The minute that you add anything on the front of somebody's descriptor, you're saying that they're less than mainstream. So until we're doing something where I don't get put up there as female director, Sandy Thompson, or, you know, there to talk to people. And I'm sure I get asked this stuff to do this stuff a lot more because they're like, well, she's used to talking to people about this stuff because you never get to fucking shut up about it because you never just get to show up and do the gig. Do you know? So I think there is a thing where part of it is you've got to vote with your feet. Like, I just don't go and see work by those guys anymore. I look at, like, I look at creative lists. I look at who's putting stuff together. I just don't give them my money anymore. But the other thing in the football team is if I'm a feminist and I'm on this team, then, you know, it's my job to talk truth to power because they don't have anything I want just now. And the reality is that, you know, the whole of theater runs on the idea that there's a scarcity of opportunity. So there's this incredible fiction that these guys got anything on merit as opposed to the escalator. So people are worried about making a noise sometimes. And that's because you don't want to be seen as the troublemaker, like my film student who had to call on a guy who could have given her a job and instead she had to call him out. You know, all of us have to, and the thing is that having spoken truth to power so often in my career, one of the things that I've also got to do is I also have to accept that that does have an impact. Like it doesn't not have an impact. It whilst you're whilst you're toppling the old regime, then yes, they won't talk to you nicely while you do it. So what that means to me is form another one. This one's fucked. Form another one. Like just don't invite them. Do you know? Like individually mobilize in, into a collective that then goes and sets up something that you know meanwhile in land much more interesting passing through from somewhere much more fucking interesting has been my whole life and like that you know women and anyone in fact who's ex excluded from that theater you know like the serious theater serious theater is still right give me give me white guy classics you know and what we really have to have is an environment that sets up independently of these and we just let them wither on the branch. Like if they're not mm -hmm. gonna change, my mom was a quality manager. Like she wasn't loudly and vocally a feminist, but she worked in engineering with my dad in the eighties and the nineties at a point where no women were in the jobs. And she did the same, she's like, I'm a quality manager. She's like, do you know what that means? You're picking up people's bloody socks. She's like, you're literally just going in going, that didn't work, let's change it. Let's change it, let's, you know, a quality procedure that makes an oil rig safe is literally just somebody coming in and going, let's just look at all the different times that you just were skite about shit 
and I need to write you down a way of doing it. Tell me that's not art administration. Tell me that <laughs> it's the same skill set. But you know, sh- the, the things that the, the things that 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 really work are when you then set up a network of women who are doing stuff, and when you start to call the other stuff what it is. And that was what she did was that, you know, she insisted on being known as a, a, she didn't, she wouldn't allow anyone to say, you know, like the industry's only quality assurance manager. She wouldn't let Scotland's only, but she was like, we're not doing that. Like, we're not putting me up because of that. So the thing is, you know, the question to me really is that as we come out of COVID, it's like, what are we going to build? Because there's a thing about mobilizing and taking action And in some ways you have to think of it as it's their PR problem. It's not your problem that they won't, like the bigger venues who are not doing anything about it and who are not addressing this, they publicly have to be answerable for the fact that they're not dealing with this and that these disparities exist. And the reality is that any of the time that I've asked for stuff, I've gotten answers. I don't have enough resources to push all the actions that will make change. And none of it, none of it is doing my job. I just want to do the gig. I'm the same as everybody else. I just want to do the gig. But the reality is that this stuff will eat your life. And that means that, that, you know, you'll know that there's three of you doing this. That means that what you need is a community because you have to divide this stuff up. Not one person can't take the fall for all the work. And it's about finding out what you can do. But some of the very big thing in it means that you have to turn your back on dad. You have to turn your back on the people who are currently getting the money to make irrelevant work based on flawed, complacent reasoning. And you have to start building not just individual works, but a collective scene that is completely separate and that has an absolute code of conduct that they refuse to put in place. And that's, you know, ideally, like when I build a film crew, that's what I'm doing. When I'm building a project, that's what I'm doing. Like my stuff hasn't ever been women's only work because for a long time I was like, I just want to be able to make whatever I want to make. And I'm willing to do without a lot of money or a lot of fun to be able to do that. So you have to decide what you want most, you know, and I think that's the thing. But I think the thing that really makes it happen is intergenerational cooperation I think the problem is that each feminist at each stage of her life is so sorely pressed by the things that are pushed on her by her life by society and then by her workplace that it can be incredibly difficult to find the bandwidth to see the commonality of the journey so a lot of the time like the reason that you get raging older feminists is that we've been all the other stages and we can see it happening to another generation and another generation and another generation. But it's also difficult to engage with the generation who are just discovering feminism and who therefore want to define all the terms, work all that. You're like, yeah, I know, I did it 20 years, I get it, I know. Like, I hear what you're saying. Equally, it's very difficult given that the first woman that everybody rebels against is their mum. For younger women to sit and listen to older women going, listen, here's the quick, quick. and it makes cooperation really dead. And the biggest trick that the patriarchy ever pulled on us was to set different generations of women against each other in the way that, because only when you actually get all of us pushing in a team, and that will mean that we don't agree on everything. That's the thing with feminism. 
Nobody agrees on every damn thing. You find your place, maybe, you know, you find your place in the football team. You go out for that season. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's not a perpetual thing, but it's something that I just see as really lacking in terms of like the work that I see done is often so enormously disjointed. And that's because it has a particular area of concern. And if you're going to be effective, you have to have a small enough area of concern. But the problem is that allows these ventures to get picked off one by one. And I think that that's the thing. If you look at like the Icelandic thing where all the women went on strike, if you look at the bit of like, there is a thing where like you literally need granny age to like 14 year olds and like work it. and granny age to 14 year old, I got to tell you, being as somebody the age of granny, that's easy because you know that it's the generation below you that's got the problem with you. And you know that that's the, you know, like everybody that's, you go from cool older sister to yeah mom. Like you'll all have had that at some point. You, you move from cool older sister to yeah mom. And everybody's in that position. Do you know, all the women that I know are in that position. But I suppose that's the thing is like, if people are listening to this, my question is just how do you coordinate so that actually we are half the population. That's how change happens. We're half the population. And, and rightly or wrongly, and it is horrific that this is the way that happens, is the reality is that the more intersectional the oppression, the more sharp, astute and urgent that oppression is. But when you're dismantling a system, you need the maximum amount of numbers, which means everybody has to get off their ass and stop empathizing only with their own stuff even though their own stuff is absolutely enough and extremely pressing. And that's the, you know, you look at it, that's what the suffragettes did. Do you know that there isn't, you know, white women got the vote before everybody else got the vote. It's not right. It's the way, if you're going to work with an existing system, it's just that force of numbers and proximity to power is what lets women in to then open the door for other women. And that delay is hideous, but that delay is about the patriarchy. It's not about the women within the feminist movement. <laughs> oh my God, Sandy. Yeah. <laughs> but you've also got the situation with the women that still are so ingrained in the patriarchy. Oh. Every single one of us, and we can, like, and I think we all have oh, to truth with ourselves. We have to check ourselves as well, because there's points I know I've fallen into that trap and I've had to check myself or I've been in a situation where I haven't behaved how I thought I would behave etc etc and it's because of what you see round about you and I think when we all can stand and say that because there are women over the last few weeks who have been like not all women get that feeling not all women have had that no I've never had that I haven't experienced that great I'm so happy that you believe that you or that you haven't experienced that that is amazing and that gives me hope to move forward Mm -hmm. but there is a thing when a woman stands up and says something that we argue against it, which we don't when it's mine. And it's what you said, Sandy, it's about the generational thing. And I wonder if there's something in how we approach the grandmother-granddaughter relationship, because mm. that is a far more, when you're in your teenage years, that's a far easier yeah, relationship yeah. than it is with your mother. Yeah. So, and maybe, maybe mm-hmm. as we move into different generation, those women who are, about to be grandmothers that were, you know, the feminists mm-hmm. in the 60s and the 70s, mm-hmm. that they're going to be able to have those conversations. So maybe it will just start to shift. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. Could be wrong. But I think you're I'm right, going for like, hope. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the thing. You've got to like, you've got to have faith. You've got to have faith that it's going to happen because 
we wouldn't have pushed this hard. Like the, the Trump thing for, you know, for women my age, what was exhausting was I was like, this stuff is going to like, I'm not going to see it happen. You know, and that's exhausting because, and the thing is, now that I look on it, it's like you're saying, like you, you don't notice the water you're in, it's like boiling a frog. You don't notice what you're brought up in. I'm like, of course I'm not going to see it happening because nothing's changed for 20 year old women. I'm sitting there pre-Trump going, things are getting better. Things are improving. They haven't. I've moved out the fucking crossfire. Like I have aged into unfuckability. Like I'm moving into a space where that doesn't happen. And what happens is an older, but you tell yourself that, that you want to believe that there's, there's forward motion. Actually, what's happening is that your women are now dealing with shit to, you know, like lassies who are losing their virginity to boys who've only ever seen online porn are going through a set of experiences that my generation would have thought was horrific to have to deal with when you're at that situation. And yes, there are always the surrendered wives, I always think of them as, the surrendered wives, like the people, the women who have surrendered themselves to the patriarchy and who want to say that that's not how it is, but it's they're still working under that patriarchal trick that has said, hey, you should only be concerned about your thing. Doesn't matter, like in the same way that we're saying that, a woman of 50s experience of sexism is not the same as a woman in their 20s, but it's still there. Yeah. A woman who doesn't perceive that she's been harassed, and I suggest she's only ever perceived that she's not been harassed, is still thinking that the only thing that matters is her lived experience. And the very point of this should be that that's not the case. That the idea, the, the challenge of the imagination that feminism brings is that you absolutely have to stand in the shoes of people who are not you. And I don't, you know, I often speak to Jeremiah was an exemplary teenager and I'm always like, how do you put up with, sometimes we, you know, we're online or we're dealing with groups of, you know, young makers. And I, he, I, I don't know how he manages because I get by by listening to it and going, okay, do you know what? You were a bigger dick when you were a teenager than that Sandy, so shut up. Like, let them let them find out like let them find out themselves but let's not pretend that if you were in your class that you wouldn't want to slap her ear <laughs> you know so I just think that that's a, a, an important thing is that for me is to recognize that you go if I met myself at 20 I wouldn't agree with her either do you know what I mean like if 20 year old me met 50 me she would just be like, the fuck are you doing? Like, there's no way that those two women have got a lot to talk to. So if we can't even accept commonality within our own selves and our own lives, of course we're not going to have commonality with every other woman and every other lived experience. That's, let's say, the big thing about feminism is you have to accept that you're not going to agree on everything and, like, become more subtle than soundbite and media wants you to be because the patriarchal media is desperate to reduce it down to conflicting sound bites. And the reality is that five women of any age who are determined to have a conversation that sets things right have never not made a difference in the world. Like that's the hopeful thing. It's like you get five women together, they've never not made a fucking difference at some point in the world. Everything that has happened has happened with small groups of women coordinating with each other across difference knowing that there is a bigger goal that has to be dealt with and knowing that the men around them do not treat it as urgent like and and that it, it lives it's not fair but that it lives with them do you know and I think that's you know that's the main thing um 
I mean, but we yeah, could talk to Sandy for hours about feminism, yeah. but maybe Sandy wants you can tell us about all the films that you're doing, Sandy. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not work, because quite but frankly, work. fuck theater. Isn't that awful? Like it didn't occur to me for a minute that we were just here to talk about the work. Do you know, like it wasn't that, <laughs> no, no, we're a, not just here to talk about the work. In a living example, you're like, haven't even thought. So you know, I think what everybody knows, and I'm very public about it because I think it's important that people know that you can make these choices is that after and you were in Monstrous Body so you were working with me the last year that I produced a piece of theatre now previous to that Poor Boy had made a piece of theatre at least once a year prior to that and in common with every other artist that meant that I could do nothing else I couldn't afford to travel I didn't have time to do anything else in my life Jake was still working full time at that time. So literally the house got cleaned once a month. We ate sandwiches for tea. Like you live like a teenager, you do whatever it takes. And in 2017, 2017, I, um, I had what was the most- I should remember that I'm on the podcast and not nod my head and say- Oh yes, yes fair do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but you know, I, I had a completely Instagrammable, uh, Instagrammable year, 2017 you know, big main stage production that had more budget behind it than almost anything else that got made that year in Scotland. And then I toured Damn Rebel Bitches, which I had been working on for years, which was to me, my coming home play that was literally about the women that I knew that, that like brought me up. And that was, you know, touring all over the place, rehearsing in Mull, idyllic, fantastic. Made a living wage made a living wage and I'm always very open about people of going I made 18 grand maybe 19 grand after tax that's a living wage and to do that I had to prep for three years for both shows and I'm always really open about those figures because I don't think we think that I don't think people know that you can be making the work but the work still doesn't pay you enough to spread that money over three years and call it a wage I still couldn't do it without a side gig and my let's say my my day job are amazing you know my day job have never been anything but 100% supportive of me and my practice and I was just taking big chunks of unpaid leave to get all of this stuff done but what it meant was I got to the end of that year and I literally had to lie down on the ground in my garden under in, in the sun for like a week I just lay on the ground and read Terry Pratchett I literally lay like I was just soaking up the vitamin d and connecting to the earth like some kind of hippie and I was busted, like I was broken on every level. And I remember thinking, okay, the problem, the, one of the issues that I have is the work that I make is big. Like I don't write, I, I've written a couple of solo shows with Jeremiah and stuff. I've done smaller work, but by and large, my stuff has a sweep to it. Like it has a certain scale. If it's a promenade, it's got nine sites. If it's monstrous bodies, it's got like a non-tourable West End size set, like it's big. And the other thing is that in my really heart, set. sorry, it was a really great set. It was an amazing set. All, all fairness to Natasha Jenkins. It was a belter of a set. And it was one of those things that as it went up, people in the venue were like, fucking hell. And this was the thing is that I was so tired of being a surprise to people. Like my offer is very clear. I'm going to make something big. I'm going to make something ambitious. There's going to be a lot of feminism in the room. And I was so tired of going into rooms and that being a surprise. And the reason that that came up for me was because Damn Rebel Bitches was literally the four actors, the three production staff and me in Mull 
And I was like, this is the process you dream of. We got so much done because all I was doing was doing the job because it was a whole room full of feminists who were all just desperate to get the work done. And it was a joy, an absolute joy to do. And I was like, it just shouldn't be this hard. And I'm looking, I've done the Me Too stuff at this point. So at this point, I'm also handling women disclosing to me on Facebook because Me Too has brought stuff up. There's no infrastructure in theatre to deal with it. I've talked to the heads of, lots of the heads of Scottish theatre who've said they'll do stuff and have done jack shit. So all of this stuff arrived and I sat down and I was like, if I was a client and I came in and spoke to me, I would be saying, do you want to, is this, are you, are you doing this because you've already devoted a lot of energy to it? Do you know, you have forsaken so many things for theatre, because they don't tell you that pursuing your love when your love is theatre means that a lot of the time you don't get to pursue fuck all else, like you don't get to pursue anything else. And sometimes that as you get older, that cost doesn't get easier, it gets harder. So you watch people like moving into like their third act and like having loads of time to do stuff and traveling and do whatever, and you don't have anything to let you do that if you're working class and working in theater. So I sat down and Jeremiah had been saying for a long time, we should do film, we should do film, the things you do are film. And because I love site specific work and that's what I really love to do, a bit of me was worried about losing the immediacy of like, I like an audience of 20. I like to be able to see the white of their eyes. I like to take them on a life changing experience but if I looked at all of the reviews for damn riddle bitches and monstrous bodies anyone who complained complained because it was filmic it was a bit populist and it was a bit filmic and everyone has always said to me you know this felt like walking through a film this felt like watching a film so I sat down and wrote a screenplay which was hilarious trying to do it like and I have to tell you you get away with murder when you're writing with theatre compared to writing with for a screenplay it's so much harder a discipline it's so much tougher anyone that's tried it will tell you that it is a bugger because it's not see in theatre if you want somebody to be underwater you go green lights bubbly noises audience's mind will do the rest if you write somebody underwater on a screenplay you better have a diving team it's like everything costs something and that really was refreshing because everything that you write is written with a view to be produced. You're not exploring ideas. You're going to make this thing. You know, like you can write lots of speculative stuff, but you come at it absolutely from the audience point of view of like, if I was sitting watching this, what would I want to see next? What would I want to hear next? So a few things happened. I got on the Write for Film course, which is, was a course that was being run by SFTN, I think at the time. And they were helping people transition from one uh, medium to the next. It was really interesting. It confused me more than helped me. Um, like I gave up endless weekends to do stuff and it was definitely, in, it, was, it moved my compass. It let me go, oh, okay, I understand what this is. I still don't understand what it's doing, <laughs> but I understand what this is. And in the process, I started to make short films. So that's been... We, I went to Nashville a uh, year past October and over an insane two weeks shot two different short films. Uh, one of which is a Southern Gothic feminist horror about reproductive rights in the 1940s. And because you're middle-class white guys won't write that. Um, and then the other one was about school shootings because I was a drama teacher during Dumblain and I ran a youth theatre and I, I know that everything 
every way that I run a public room ever since has been like, where are the exits? If there was a girl, and I'm like, and you know, America has shooting after shooting after shooting in schools and nothing happens. And I spoke to an American guy whose five-year-old had come home and explained their first lockdown drill. And I tried to imagine. So we wrote a play where I was like, how, how do you go into a, a primary school? How do you go into primary one and make it possible to do a lockdown drill without putting these kids in fear of their life? Like, how do you, how do, you do that? And we'd found this terrible, awful version of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star that a primary school teacher in America had written to instruct her class on what to do during a lockdown drill. And it just, do you know when you meet something, you're like, I urgently need to make something about that. Like right now, I urgently need. And the amazing thing about film kind of is you kind of can. So compared to theatre, <laughs> you know, write an application, put it into the ether, hope that the gods and crystals of Creative Scotland see fit to give you some money for development that's not enough money and takes seven months to appear and then doesn't show up at the right time and then they want you to change the parameters. And then if you get through that, maybe you'll get to the point. And I was like, feck this, we ran a Kickstarter. And again, a lot of this is down to Jeremiah. You know, the, the thing of we'd run it, and you and I know about this, Elaine, because you and I ran a fundraising campaign, which I still talk to people about to this day so that we could do Pirates and Mermaids. And you and I sat on the phone for three weeks, just recruiting people to do a firewalk, to raise money, to do a show. And I remember being really worried about that at the time and wanting to interrogate why, because there was something unprofessional at that point. This is just a bit before Kickstarter was a big thing, where it was like, oh, you're going to do fundraising. That's not quite proper. And I was like, God, there are all these systems in theatre to keep you poor. Like it's only proper if it gets like Creative Scotland funding. It's only proper if it happens in a venue. And I'm like, and the thing is, I sit with the audiences in my work. I know my work is proper. So I know this is all bullshit. So why do I care? So I we had this chat. Remember Sunday and I said yeah. to you, I was like, I feel really weird asking people to do it because I'm not asking for a charity. Mm -hmm. I'm not asking for a quote unquote charity. Yeah. I'm not asking, you know, to give to cancer or yeah. know, Alcimer's Scotland or anything. Yeah. I, that yeah. I remember that conversation yeah. so clearly, like both of us, like, oh, yeah. fuck. And to be but able yeah, to do it. Still on the phone. <laughs> and, and this is the thing, is like the thing that you had and the thing that I had was this absolute, to be able to do that, to be able to know that we could fundraise, you have to have this absolute balls to the wall, unapologetic, this story's worth telling, I believe in it and you should get involved. And people don't encourage women to do that. And people don't encourage women to ask people to do shit for them. And I remember sitting down with you and being like, do you know, the reality is that I've been a director all my life. That means my social circle's tiny. I don't have time to socialize. I don't have enough social capital to make this shit work. And we sat down with you and I'm like, I know who does though. <laughs> so we sat down. Ailey made a list, Elaine made a list. We did the numbers game and we worked out that we got nine no's for every yes and that the list was too short. So we sat down and Elaine added 200 more names to this list. And then we just phoned people for weeks. And it's one of those things that I remember thinking at the time, and I have a I have a relative who's very like, if it's meant to happen, it will happen. I'm like, bullshit. Because if it was meant to happen, the universe is telling me to fucking forget it. Because all I'm hearing is no, all Elaine is hearing is no, we're both exhausted. We can barely deal with what we're having to do every evening. It is both exhausting and mortifying. But at the end of the day, 
we had enough people together on this remarkable night where we all went on a firewalk. And by that time, I don't know about you, Elaine, but I was like, okay, fuck it, walk on fire. That's the next thing, just do it. Do you know, like I wasn't in the moment with everybody. I was still just motoring to do it. But the thing is that that's a very, that's a very normal way to raise money for film. Like that attitude was fantastic. And that practice was incredible practice for then getting to create a Kickstarter. Because, you know, film's not cheap. Like there's a thing where depending on where you want to be, there's a real, there's a real thing about, it's got pros and cons in that it is much more expensive to make it than theater a lot of the time. But once you've made it, it's there. It doesn't go away. And as someone who's had two scripts published, and I'm always like, God, I wish we'd stop making a fuss about the scripts. The only reason that we make a fuss about writing in Scottish theatre is because that's something you can actually nail to a physical fucking object. So it gets all this reverence compared to the performances. I have seen performances that have changed people's lives. That's why actors have got the centre of, like my process is around the actors because they're the ones who are in the fucking room at the time. And the reality is that it gets far less respect than it should because it can't be captured. The very essence of it is that it can get in like a virus and change somebody's heart, but you can't carry it out and tell somebody else about it and make it live for them. They have to come and see it themselves. And that's why I think theater is still important. So, you know, long story short, we went and shot these two short films and that was insane to do. I didn't, I had had one day's shooting prior to that. I'd done like a spoken word, single day shoot in Westward Works to like, understand what camera is hilarious at this discussion because obviously she just come off a shoot last week her face is like (laughs) like I'm still needing daily naps to recover yeah and the thing is though your theater training is so good for that because everybody that I know has said oh oh film is crazy and I'm like oh let me tell you about crazy like honestly let me tell you about crazy let me tell you about driving home from the CCA four o'clock in the fucking morning after meeting Joss Whedon bastard and like you know the amount of things that I've done that are insane and unheralded is wonderful whereas in film everybody's telling you like you know this is going to be hard you're like fine I'm good with hard it's you know but it is exhausting because every minute literally counts and that's very that is different from theater it's very like what you were saying earlier about that state of um like through the pandemic like we're in that constant state of adrenaline like we like everything is reactive it's all like you are constantly waiting for shit to hit the fan and that you're going to need to like put out that fire it's a constant like like, I think that's why it's so exhausting because your brain is just, yes. and it's probably why you were fine for two weeks as well, because you didn't come out of it. Yeah. But as soon as you come out of it, you're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. fall over. I mean, I think that's the, th- and, and the thing of, for me, the thing of being both a writer and a director, like I'm, I have stories I want to tell. I can write things for other people and I can direct other people's work, but the most remarkable things that I do, and I've done a lot of remarkable things, are always things where I am there from the beginning right to putting the lights out at the end. And and that, you know, again, that kind of autonomy of like saying to people, poor boy existed to make my work. That's like, that was, it worked with its actors. It, It survived because of its ensemble and its process but the output was about my work. It was about what I wanted to make as work. And that's why I know what the escalator could look like because I know that you can have that autonomy as a director and people are like, whoa, okay. And that is so much more the case in film. Do you know, so writers are not deeply respected in film. 
But one of the things that I was lucky enough to do was I applied actually, and this is where having a team and allyship comes in. I think Jeremiah and I write applications for each other all the time. Like if we spot something the other one should be going for, we'll like phone each other and go, I just need to. And Jeremiah had, I had flagged up to Jeremiah the year before. I said, there's this writer's lab in New York for women over 40. I should be on that. And we made an unsuccessful application that year. But by the next year, you know, I was working on different things, I was writing different things. And he saw the application was ready, the date coming up. And he's like, do you want me to put together an application? You can look over it and then we'll bang it in. We banged in an application and I got selected. And it's been a life-changing thing. And that's why I keep talking about the football team feminism thing. Because what happens there is, what I didn't understand was that the New York Writers Lab has 1,300 1300 applications only takes 12 people and you have to have a full length feature now I'm saying all of this and saying they're also doing next there's about two weeks before the deadline for their first British one so any writers that you know who have a, a half hour pilot or a tv thing or a feature who are over 40 it's an amazing cohort to join because for the first time in my entire fucking career being a woman and being older than everybody else didn't, it wasn't a thing. It was just come in and do the job. And it was a joy. It was, and I was like, this is what it has to be like to be a white guy all the time. Oh my God. It's amazing. And I was incredibly lucky because my mentors were Reva Marker, are Reva Marker, who is a producer at Nine Stories with Jake Gyllenhaal. And who produced an amazing spooky it's called relic like go watch it it's just tingling um and then uh robin uh will i be scared no i mean it's up it's up I don't know. It's hard for me to say because I like horror. I, mean, I, I think it's more disturbing. Character. I think it's more disturbing and otherworldly than like horror. Um, but what is, what is amazing is it's the most female horror I've ever seen in my life. It's like womanly to its fucking bones. And I don't think that you see that very often because I think the male gaze is so solidly in film. And that's what I'm fighting with just now is like, how do you dismantle film and make things whilst using the tools that were developed by men to look at women. So my writing, I was very lucky, my writing mentor was Robin Swicor, who worked with Greta Gerwig on Little Women. And it just like, literally the, the pair of them, every time I spoke to them, I was just like, can I record this? Can I write this down? It was just like getting knowledge bombed by people who are so deeply embedded and experienced in the industry. And that's been incredible. And they were amazing. So what day I went in thinking I would, you know, get lots of notes and stuff. And I did get lots of notes and lots of rewriting to do. But what they both very solidly said, which I think is a very professional woman thing to do, is they were like, this is great. We're going to help you get this made. And now they are both on as exec producers on my first feature. And it's one of those things that, like, you know it doesn't when it comes to things like being in a room with someone you know professionally there is no time for fangirling if you're going to get along and actually get work done you actually just have to go what's the work that we're doing 
And because every single thing they told me was gold dust, and I knew I was going to have to sit down and work out what the hell to do with it, you know. So the, Robin would say things like, "It's just a little note, but here's something to think about." And then you'd have twenty hours of rewriting because you're like, "She's so right." Oh god! And when somebody who's that good tells you that that's what needs to be done, you're just like, "Fine, I will do it." And I think that's the other thing. Like, you know, one of the things that was amazing about being in the writers' lab is that. I have spent my entire life with people thinking that I am like brass necked and hard about taking advice, that I'm overly proud, that I'm overly like status driven, you know, just all those different things. The reality is that when a woman who has my best interests at heart gives me advice, I'll take it. And I won't think twice about status or position. It's really interesting that when you take away all the combative things of you're a woman in charge of this budget and we're worried about that, or you're a woman in charge of this room and I'm not sure I want to be in a room run by a woman. Like when you take away all that shit, people were like, Sandy's so circumspect. I'm just going to let that word float past all of you. Like, and I know we're on a podcast so people can't see that you're all fucking ending yourself laughing here. Sandy's so circumspect. She's so thoughtful about what she's doing. She thinks really hard when you give her a note. She's so amenable to being given a note. Sandy is so amenable to being given a note. I'm just going to leave that there. Right? <laughs> But the reality is that anybody that's worked with me that knows that if the note is about making them work better and doesn't come from a place of like shifting it, then everybody knows that I'll take notes from, I'll take notes from the 18 year old who's in on work placement. I don't care where it comes from. As long as what you have is this furious, passionate desire to make the work amazing. And if that's what the commitment is, then that's always going to be something to listen to. But the thing is that in a room of women my own age, everybody arrived there, like everybody started there. And in that way of women, because we were online and yes, I am gutted, I'm gutted that I wasn't in a, at a ranch on upstate New York for four, four days. Yes, how pissed off am I? However, what it did mean was that the whole cohort just arranged to meet up a month before the lab. And then we just started seeing each other every week. And now what I have is this cohort of 12 writers from across the world who all meet up with me every month and like we share work or we share what we're doing. I have never had that in fear. I've never been offered it. There's never been enough women my age to have it. There's not. And part of it is exactly that. It's like film is doing what theatre should do because they looked at what film was doing and went, there's room for a whole other system. There's a whole other infrastructure growing up around work that's not driven by white guys like there's a whole other infrastructure and the the bonus is that you know they make work and it stays like the problem with theater it's tiring is that you have to make it work every time you have to be you they only have to be lucky once you have to be lucky every time to make the work and you never know when the thing is showing up that will take out the work that you're doing so that you can't make something this year Whereas if I can spend four days on a ranch in Kentucky making a complete arse of sh shooting a short film, I've still got footage at the end. It might not be everything I wanted it to be, but it's, you know, like at the end of the day, I still own, I have that footage and that can be repurposed into many different things. And I think that's the thing that I'm finding, I guess one of the things that I'm finding interesting is that as a director, I realized that my site-specific work has always been about controlling the audience's eyes as if they were like a camera. Like if we come into this dark railway space, how do I make them look at that little bit up there and stuff? So now what I'm doing is I'm hunting for women DPs 
that I am going that I might enjoy working with because I feel like there's probably like a fantastic partner in crime thing that you can do and looking for locations is like my favorite thing in the world and then working with actors is very different on a film but it's still what it stands or falls by so it was a real eye-opener to me at 50 to be going I apparently I'm doing this now like I'm apparently after years and years and years and years of commitment to this thing I'm now doing this thing and it suits it suits my skills and it suits my sensibilities very well and I I'm a little appalled looking over my shoulder right now and I'm not saying I won't come back to theater but I won't come back to this like fuck this shit I'm not coming back to this. I'm, you know, I'll come back at the point where there's a women's collective that wants to work with me, or I'll come back at the point where there's been radical change in the main venues. And I might, you know, I'm I might do something then. But the reality is that I like to be really connected to an audience. I like to be intimate with an audience. I like to be close up and working with my actors. I love the idea that you can control what people are seeing and I'm in love with a gorgeous location and all of those. And, and I spend forever on a soundtrack. Like I've never done a show where the sound guy hasn't been like, this is not like normal. Like I've never not done sound that hasn't, you know, just broken my music guys in seven different bits. And all of that, it turns out is just what being a filmmaker is. So that's been amazing. And I know that, you know, lots of people are looking at that in theater now because those skills are transferable and that industry is going to pay better. It's It's got as high a rate of attrition, but the wages are better and the work is more permanent. And I think that if you're used to the risks of theatre, it's a really, most people are like, ooh, worry about getting into film, it's scary. I'm like, no, if you come from theatre, mate. Not if you come from theatre in a working class background in Scotland, you're a woman, it's not. It's not that scary. You've done worse. Like, believe me when I tell you, you've all dealt with more shit than that. So I think that's the thing that's lovely is that it's achievable. And let's say the things that I've made, they're odd, quirky little things. They're not, I haven't hit my stride with that yet. Like I'm I'm getting to the point where I'm finding my kind of voice as a director of film. And part of that is to do with working with other storytellers. And I feel like I haven't quite found that, like there's still that thing where there's not a cluster of guys around the camera on most shoots. Like you can be as feminist as you like. And then the minute there's tech, you're like, where did all these blokes come from? Do you know, like there's that, now I'm not saying that the folks I didn't work with were great, they were great, but it's not what I want it to look like. Like what I want is, and I'm trying to remember, is Olivia Wilde who just made me stand up and applaud with her no asshole rule that she has on set. And I was just like, that's it but the thing is that that's what she's doing the work like she's naming it she didn't have to talk about that she's naming it so that other women filmmakers know that they can do the same thing and that's why this is what I think you got to do you got to share your workings which is why I'm making a big thing telling everybody about the fact that the writer's lab has just moved to, to Britain and is is opening because I think it's an amazing network and the women meets in Elizabeth who founded it are incredibly they're fantastically New York advocates with all the energy that that implies for women in film everywhere. But I think that the 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 other thing is that, you know, I've I've gone through genuinely what feels like an absolute mistress class with Robin about like the, the, the change in my writing is discernible from like when I met her, which is why I am sitting down with this one that I'm writing. I literally have two things on my desk here. One of them is this. This is where I write down every meeting I've had while I get my feature made so that when someone asks me, how do I get my feature made? 
I've written down all the steps of like spoke to this person, then that was bad, then I did this, so that people can understand what the journey's like. And then the other thing that I have down here is a rewrite of something that having now spent time with Robin, I've looked at a script that me and Jim I have got and gone, oh God, that needs to be better. So now I'm reworking it, but we have a screenwriting system that we're using that I'm going to record and send out to people that ask for it because I wish somebody had given me a guidance to kind of work on. And what lots of people spoke about were like things to include, but nobody told me how to do it. And I've had a few people come up and go, but how, how do you write a 90 minute thing that really works? So what I'm doing is just going, maybe I can, maybe I can rationalize this into a single kind of click box. This is how you do it. And that's me doing my Olivia Wilde thing. It's like, whatever women do this, it's like when they do something, they assume that they have to share it because sharing it is how you enable other women to do it. And that's how we know that the guys in the escalators aren't with us. Because when was the last fucking time that you heard any of them do any of that? So that's what you have to keep your eye on the name for. And it does like it just, you know, it means that what you have to do to get something done is you've got to act like you're the main character. Like in every room, you have to act like you're the main character. Guys do it all the time, you know? But the minute that a woman does it, it's like, it's a weird one. So I just think that's, you know, I think that's a lot easier to do if you know that there's an invisible football team behind you of women going, you are, you are the fucking main character. On you go, on you go, you know? Wow, Stanley. Oh my God. <laughs> what an absolute, like, yeah, thank you. I'm like, absolutely like... <laughs> I know. Elaine, do you have to edit that? I'm so sorry. <laughs> I don't need to edit. I don't need to edit. I was going to say, I don't think it needs edited. I think it could just old. go up. Okay. That's <laughs> fine then. That's fine. That's fine. That's totally fine. I mean, that's the start of your masterclass, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That's like the first the first two hours of your masterclass. Here right you are. Done. Go, boom. I'll, I'll, I'll retransfer it to you, Sandy. You, you awesome. Have it. Yeah, you can save yourself a whole bunch of work just by sending people to listen to this like, podcast. You can listen yeah. to all of this. Yeah, that's it. Just send them to the Persistent Nasty Podcast. That's I intend it. to. I regularly do. Thompson, thank you so much. I know. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I feel like we don't even need to ask you what Persistent and Nasty means to you. I just think that you... I think you know. It encompasses Sandy Thompson, <laughs> persistent and nasty. Like if you looked up Sandy Thompson in the dictionary, it would say persistent and nasty. <laughs> I'm inordinately proud of all of you though. Like you should know that. Like one of the things that makes it so much easier to countenance what's going on just now is to know that there is a cooperative, however small and however unpaid, which is a travesty, by the way. Um, but you know, like, Thanks. but it is, it's a travesty. It's insane that when you're doing work that's vital that you're not funded. And that's what I mean about whatever it needs to talk truth to power. It's important to me that, you know, we acknowledge that you guys are doing this, it's voluntary. It's absolutely vital and it needs to be sustained because it makes it so much, I don't know how many people I've sent you over the last few months. Like I have no, when I'm like, if you need a gathering place, here you go, here you go. Like, you know, this is because individually we can't all do it. So the thing that you do is a fabulous service where I'm delighted to be on and talking. But I also think that it's something that, you know, at some point we should all sit down and go, how do we resource this? Because the fuck are we gonna do if you weren't there? And this, like, no system that's going to change the world should rely on three incredibly busy women 
who are making their own work and doing the juggle, finding the time to sustain a space for the whole rest of the sisterhood. So thank you for taking the, the weight, because that's not a weight that any of the rest of us were stepping forward to do. But also, once you know what we have to do about that, you should let us all know, because we need to know, because we need to help. Thank you. Oh, well, maybe we could uh, uh, gather uh, properly and Sandy and I, we could take that uh, half one in the morning wine chat about how we were going to do that and put it into something more formal. We should. <laughs> we should do Let's do that. Let's do that when we're not drunk. Let's do that when we're not drunk. That's we'll a that good idea. While we're doing it. I would, I would say let's, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's there. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, um, all right, Mish. Thank Go you it, babes. so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Sandy Thompson. Thank you all you beautiful listeners for tuning in to another Persistent and Nasty podcast. And until next time, stay, stay nasty. nasty. <laughs>